It's a, a real delight and joy to be with you this morning. Um, it was back um, about the early mid, mid part of March that I got a call from John. I really didn't know anything about your church until we had a conversation. And he let, he let me know that your pastor um, had left and felt God calling him to another area of service. And he just wanted to talk to me about giving some help during this transition time. And so we, we began, began that conversation then, and it's kind of continued. Um, I had one opportunity to come several weeks ago to talk with your personnel committee and to, to see the church and to meet some of you. And then and last night, we were with a, another group of church leaders to, to talk about the direction and the future of this great church. And um, I, I did something um, back in March. Um, after I told John I would be willing to have these conversations, I started praying for you. I, I've been praying for you every day. And I know that in Baptist circles, sometimes we say, I'll pray for you, and honestly, we never do it, right? But I'm just letting you know that I'm not that way. When I, when I tell you I'm going to pray for you, I pray for you. And I have been praying for you. And so I feel kind of like I'm a little bit at home <laughs> among friends. Uh, certainly, I know God has been at work in your church. And I am, I am convinced that God is going to do some amazing things beyond your wildest imaginations. Um, life uh, is full of transitions. Would you agree? Yeah. It could be a loss. Maybe a death, a divorce, just having a friend move away could be you moved. <laughs> and and you, know, you didn't even realize you were in a transition. You just wake up one day and you wonder why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. Sometimes it's an illness. Sometimes it's failure. A new baby in the home causes a transition. Transitions can be challenging. They force us to trade the familiar for the unfamiliar. They force us to trade comfort for chaos and peace sometimes for anxiety. I'm in a transition right now. It's called retirement. <laughs> any, any of you been through that one? <laughs> I could use some help. <laughs> um, someone asked me that, hey, what, what are you doing in retirement? And I said, anything I want to do, <laughs> which was a lot of nothing. <laughs> um, I'm aware this morning, though, that as a church, you are in a transition, too. Whether you've recognized it and realized it, you are. You're between pastors. Some of you are saying, really? I didn't, really, I didn't know that. <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's the thing that's so amazing to me. With God's help, we don't just go through transitions, ladies and gentlemen. We actually, with the help of God... We actually can grow through transitions. And, and this morning, what I want to try to do in the time that I have available is to talk to you about a transition that took place beginning in Acts 1. And in some respects, it's, it's continuing to take place. And so my message this morning is coming from Acts chapter 1. And on the surface, when you read Acts chapter 1, it, it seems random. Yet if you look deeper into the passage, you realize that what's happening in Acts chapter 1 is that Jesus 
is preparing his disciples uh, for the greatest transition of their life. He's helping them to grow through that. And the transition is his departure. In case you didn't know it, from the resurrection of Jesus to the ascension of Jesus, 40 days lapse. And then from his ascension to Pentecost, another 10 days. So there is this 50-day period of waiting in which Jesus prepares his disciples for what is going to happen after Pentecost and beyond. So here's the amazing thing about the book of Acts as you study about and read about and learn about all of the acts of the apostles, that's what it's called, but essentially it's the acts of Jesus after his resurrection. All the things that happen, we can identify, we're connected. We're a part of, the, of that ongoing transition from when Jesus ascended to heaven and when he returns again. And he's laying the foundation in Acts chapter 1 for the church to be built on healthy foundations. He's helping his disciples develop the attitudes that contribute to those healthy foundations. And so what I want to do this morning is I'm going to look with you uh, at those five transitions, those five attitudes, those five foundations. And I think you have some notes. If you want to use those to follow along, that'd be helpful. Here's the first one. During this 50-day period, Jesus developed in them a secure faith. You find this in verses 1 through 5. The scripture says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So this is Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke to Theophilus. This is a sequel to the letter. It's a follow-up letter. And he's just simply reminding him of what he had talked to him about in the first letter, the Gospel of Luke. And then he goes on in verse 3. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So here's what you need to see. In the 40-day period after his resurrection and before his ascension, Jesus is fortifying the faith of his disciples. And the text says he does it in three primary ways. He proved to them that he was really alive. <laughs> you know, we, we did not have that firsthand experience, right, of seeing Jesus alive watching him go to the cross and die, then seeing the resurrected Jesus. That would have been an amazing thing. It'd be like you had a friend who went into the hospital and died of an illness, and a few days later, he shows up on your doorstep, and he's alive again, right? That would impact you significantly. You'd be processing that for a while. And Jesus knew that his disciples were still processing the resurrection, and so he took this opportunity, this 40-day period, to help them understand that it really took place and the implications of it all. So he proved to them that he was really alive. Number two, it says in the text that he taught them about the kingdom of God. And then three, he commanded them to wait for the power that they would need to actually do the work that he was calling them to do. So in these moments that they spent to just 40-day period, they received their conviction 
their passion for ministry. I don't know if you've ever wondered this, but I have. What made the first century church spread like an airborne disease? What made the faith of these early believers so strong? Like Acts is full of persecution. Everybody suffers there. Like it didn't, it didn't, it didn't uh, like easy. You know, everything doesn't, you're not blessed every time you turn around in the book of Acts. There, it's, it's a difficult time, but these, what made, what made the faith of these early disciples so strong in the midst of all of that? What made the church attractive, compelling, and even irresistible? Here's what it was. It was, it was the disciples' belief in the resurrection of Jesus. They saw Jesus fulfill the promise he gave them to raise himself from the dead. And it changed everything. And the explosive growth of the early church rested in the power of the resurrection. And I would submit to you this morning that it is impossible to build a church without a passionate belief in the resurrection. An unwavering conviction that it really happened and it's impacting us even today. That's why Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples proving to them that the resurrection was true. Securing their faith. And here's the, here's the thing, it's so cool to me. Jesus wants to do the same thing with us. And, but for this to happen, we actually have to spend time with Jesus. Sometimes it's just being with Jesus, not saying anything, just being in his presence and just opening our lives up to anything that he wants to do in our lives. It's waiting. It's waiting at his feet, trusting that he has something for us allowing him to have permission to do whatever he chooses to do in our life. I encourage you during this time of transition to spend time with Jesus, which leads us to the second foundation, and that is that Jesus developed in them an accurate vision. You see this in verses 6 through 8, where it says, so when Jesus had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Mm, sort of the focus of Jesus' conversations during this 40-day period, we're around the kingdom of God and the spirit of God. Because it is, it is clear that his disciples lacked understanding when it came to either one of these two important concepts. So he's leading disciples to, to get some clarity about their vision and a deeper understanding of his mission. And in the text, uh, we see this teaching coming from a question that they ask about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. I mean, they totally did not get it. Like, they were still in this mindset. Jesus came, he's going to restore Israel. He's going to wipe out Rome. Everything's going to be wonderful and great. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to correct their misunderstanding. And I love, it. I love the way Jesus does this. I love the way he does it in my life, and I'm sure that you love the way he does it in your life too. When he corrects you, he does it with love. And he does it because he's genuinely wanting to help you come to appreciate um, whatever it is you're misunderstanding. And in, and in this case, 
He's correcting their misunderstanding about the vision, what he came to do. And he teaches them three things about his vision in this passage. One is the kingdom of God is spiritual in character. It's, it's not physical. It's, it's not territorial. It's, it's not a political dominion. Jesus is not the new king coming into overthrow room. The kingdom is a spiritual reality. It, it is the rule of God in the hearts of his people. It is the spirit of God, Jesus says, who makes this rule of God a living and present reality in the people of God. Doesn't that give you hope this morning? That it isn't all up to us, that actually the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our life makes us who we're supposed to do. And when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus was saying to these disciples, when he comes, you're going to receive the power and you're going to know what to do at that time. You, you, don't, you don't have to have all of your questions answered. It's just about trusting in the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit who will be coming. Number two, he teaches them that the kingdom is God, of God is global in its membership. He promised that the Holy Spirit would empower them to be witnesses to the whole world. Jerusalem, Judea, despised Samaria, even to the Gentiles. He's telling them, look, in the kingdom of God, there's no distinction with race, nation, right, sex. There, there are no longer any barriers to fellowship. Everyone gets the opportunity to come in and to be a part of, of this spiritual reality. In the beginning, the Jesus movement was called the Way. Mission Way, which I had the privilege of being the founding pastor of Mission Way. We came up Mission Way. It starts with a capital M, and it's one word with a capital W, Mission Way. And it's, and it's all about our commitment to be a part of the mission that God is doing in the world. That, that's just our way of life. It, and, we, and we use this we use this name that was given to the early believers, the way, to kind of help us to, to come to grips with our name. Which, by the way, if you start a church, that's one of the hardest things you have to do is figure out what the name of the church is going to be. But I love Mission Way. I love what it connotates. I love the reminder that it gives us day in and day out. Every time we say the word Mission Way or M Way, it's, it's just, it just reminds us of that. But in the beginning, the Jesus was called the way. It was a name that spoke of direction, intention, and passion. This was not regional. It was not national. It was not tied to a sacred spot. This was a movement offering a way forward to every people group, every tribe, and every tongue. And Jesus is communicating to them, hey, this is my vision. You need to get it. I'm inviting you to be a part of something that's grand and glorious and magnificent. And then the third thing he teaches them is the kingdom of God is gradual in its expansion. The disciples expected a habit in their lifetime. It comes out of the passage that we just read. But Jesus is saying to them, hey, the growth of the kingdom is not on your timetable. It's on the Father's timetable. It's spread by witness, not by soldiers, through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war, by the work of the Spirit, not by force of arms. Not by political intrigue or revolutionary violence. It will happen between the Spirit's coming and the Son's coming again. And Jesus is saying then, we have no liberty to stop our work until both ends have been reached. In fact, Jesus said the two ends will coincide when the gospel of the kingdom has been preached to the whole world. Only then 
will the end come? Do you feel connected with this early group of believers? You should, because we're still a part of this process. We, we're living in this in-between time. First point, we saw that a secure faith is where the disciples receive their conviction or their passion for ministry. In this point, I want you to see that an accurate vision is where they receive their commission. It's where they receive their marching orders. My dad passed away. He's a retired naval officer. He had a, what's called a commission. If you go to the ceremony where an officer's commissioned, they're, they're given specific instructions of which they agree to. This, that's the whole idea here. And these early disciples accepted that. And history is the record of this. They literally gave up their lives in pursuit of its completion. My question to you this morning is, how about you? It's one thing to receive it, ladies and gentlemen. It's another thing to pursue it to its completion at any cost. And that's what we're called to do. Which leads to foundation number three. Jesus, during this 50-day period, developed in them a mind to work. This is verses 9 through 11. It's about the ascension of Jesus. We don't talk about this much, but it's very important for us to see this in the context of Acts 1. Beginning with verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. The cloud there being a, a reference to the glory of God as the cloud followed the children of Israel to sort of indicate to them the presence of God on the one hand, but to hide his holiness and glory on the other hand. And so here, here you have this reference to Jesus being taken up, taken up by this cloud out of their sight. And while he was going, they were gazing into heaven. <laughs> and suddenly two men, angels, in white clothes stood beside them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up in heaven? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. I can just imagine how difficult the ascension was for these disciples. Like, they're losing Jesus for the second time. You know, he died once, and, you know, they went through all the trauma and grief that's associated with a loss. But three days later, he, he, he comes back. And, I mean, they're enjoying this time with him. It's, it, from the last passage that we read, it, it, it sort of indicates that I think he's going to stay around for a while and set up his rule on earth, but here he ascended. I don't know that they had any, I don't know that he, they were prepared for it. He just ascended. And then these angels show up. So it was difficult. They're losing Jesus for the second time. Yet without them realizing it, here's what I want you to see in this text, without them realizing what they were, were receiving was the motivation to act. The motivation to act. Why? Here's why. Before the Spirit could come, the Son had to go. Do, do you remember a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples? In the, it's recorded in, I think, more than one of the Gospels, where he simply says, to them, hey, look, it's expedient that I depart, that I leave, because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit does not come. And ladies and gentlemen, we need the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our world, in our church. These disciples needed the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to motivate them and give them the power to carry out the work that God has called them to do. And the angels give 
these disciples some good advice. They give us some good advice too. You'll not bring Jesus back by gazing up into the sky. Your calling is to be witnesses, not stargazers. So quit looking up. You've been commissioned to go out. Your view is not to be upward in nostalgia, but outward in obedience and compassion. And maybe I, maybe I, may I step on your toes just a little bit this morning and simply say to you, our problem sometimes is we look backward in nostalgia when we should be looking forward in obedience and compassion. Hey, the God I serve is a faithful God, and He takes us through transitions. He has a way for us to get through them. And He has something on the other side that's great and grand and, and beautiful and wonderful. And our call, even though we don't understand it, even though we've got looming questions, even though we're, we're, we're down in the dumps, we can't figure things out, and we're wondering if God's really going to come through for us, in spite of all of that, we need to obey. And we need to offer compassion in the name of Jesus to those around us. There's somebody saying, hey, look, don't stand there. Get on with your work, your calling, your mandate. Jesus is going to return in the same way he left, in his own time and in his own way. You can almost hear their sense of urgency. You don't have to stand around and look at stars. People desperately, you don't have time for that. People desperately need to hear and respond to the gospel. It's, it's a life and death matter. With Holy Spirit power, it's time for us to tackle the vision. And honestly, here's what I think happened. That brought them to their knees. To understand that, to take all of that in, to, to sort of accept the reality that Jesus was now gone for their, for, from their presence. They didn't know for how long. They, I guess the assumption would be he wouldn't be coming back. They were, it, they were totally on their own. And it brought them to their knees. Which leads to foundation number four. Jesus developed in them a heart for prayer. I, I sort of think Jesus knew that his ascension would call them to go to their knees. And in verses 12 14, through 14, we, we find what these disciples, these early Christ followers did immediately after the ascension of Jesus. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem. A Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. If you count those, by the way, there are 11 in there. They were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Just so you know, sort of a little trivia here, this is the last time Mary, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned in the Scriptures. They spent the 10 days before Pentecost praying. 10 days they spent praying. Like this wasn't a 30-minute prayer time, and then they went about business, you know, got in the car and did all their shopping or whatever. This was, this was 10 days praying. Why? They prayed out of fear. Jesus had left. The size of the task was overwhelming. The Holy Spirit had not yet come. It was the only thing they knew to do. It is what Jesus taught them to do. They couldn't talk to Jesus in person, so they talked to the Father in prayer. A couple of quotes I just leave with you this morning, sort of about prayer in the church. 
One writer says, when God wants to do something special in the world, he first gets his people to start praying. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty simple. We can start praying right now, today. We can start praying. Another writer says, the spiritual history of a mission or a church is written in its prayer life. Luke tells us that their prayers had two characteristics. Their prayer was united. They prayed in one accord, 120 of them. One mind, one purpose, one impulse. Their prayer was persevering, persistent. They prayed without giving up until the answer came. Here again, we're on this side of history. We get to see what happened on the day of Pentecost. They obeyed Jesus' command to wait and to pray for Pentecost. And honestly, you know what I think they received? As, as Jesus developed in this heart for prayer, as, as they spent this time in prayer, I think they received encouragement. It's what got them through this difficult time, this difficult transition. And, and I just suggest to you this morning that what will get you through this period of transition at First Bradenton will be prayer. And John did an amazing job. I've list, I listened to the series along the way. He did an amazing job on this 28 days of prayer series. It's like, take, take responsibility to pray. It's something that we can all do. It's the way every single one of us can be involved in moving successfully through the transition that you're in or any transition that you're in and finding God's way in that transition, which leads to the final foundation. And that, in, that is he developed in them the courage to lead. You find this in verses 15 through 26, where it says, In those days, Peter, we're thankful for Peter, right, stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were together was about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the Scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus for he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell headfirst. His body burst open as, and his intestines spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem so that in their own language that field is called uh, Hakadama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalm, let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these, it, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed. Again, they prayed. You, Lord, know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas let go where he belongs, let, left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias. And he, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So, 
You ever read that part of the scripture before? So why is it there? Why is it there? Because it's there because you see here the courage of Peter to lead. There was a need to replace Judas. He committed suicide. There was a mandate for replacing Judas, the Old Testament scripture. There was a choice to replace Jesus because of Peter's leadership, Matthias. Peter stepped up, taking leadership, fulfilling his responsibility. He knew the need to do it was revealed in Scripture. He knew it had huge ramifications for the future of Christ's kingdom. Jesus appointed 12 apostles according, uh, corresponding to the 12 sons of Jacob, Israel's tribal leaders. The 12th apostle had to be replaced for the true Israel to be complete. They, they didn't miss it. Have you ever missed something? You're supposed to be somewhere at a certain time and you, you miss it. You have a doctor's appointment, you missed it. They could have easily missed this. They could have been wallowing in self-pity and missed it. But they were on watch. They were praying. They were asking for the Father's direction. They were anticipating the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Peter had the insight to step up and say, hey, we got to do something here because the Scripture's com compelling us to do it. And what happens in this conversation, in this you know, casting of lots and the choosing of Matthias is that the, apostle, the, the apostles, these early disciples received, their, disciples received their readiness to begin. And their obedience led to their readiness. Hey, they simply did what they needed to do. They took a step in the right direction. Sometimes you think about a transition. Like we were talking about what it might mean for this church to take a transition Last night, and it's just a lot, it's, it's almost mind-boggling, but like a lot of other complex things in our life, what we have to do, right, is we have to take the next step, and then the step after that, and the step after that. And in the Christian walk, if, if, we, if we continue to say yes to the Holy Spirit, one step after another, we find that he's faithful to lead us and to do remarkable things in our life. So now the stage is set for Pentecost. The apostles have received Christ's commission, seen his ascension. The apostolic team is complete. They're ready to be his chosen witnesses. We, we leave Acts 1 with 120 disciples of Jesus. That, that's the church. <laughs> that's the church. In a room in Jerusalem, persevering, united in prayer, ready and waiting. Only one thing missing. You know what that is, and so do I. The Spirit has not yet come. But ladies and gentlemen, we know the rest of the story. The Holy Spirit did come. He came in power. And the church exploded. And it's continued to grow ever since then. And we're part of this movement. We're part of the work the Holy Spirit is doing in the world. And just because a pastor that we may have loved decides that God has called him somewhere else, doesn't stop us. If anything, it just keeps us moving ahead, keeps us moving forward. So here are the takeaways. I want you to get three of them really quickly. First of all, Jesus loves his church. He called us his bride. He's intimately involved in every detail of what we're doing. Sometimes we exclude him and we push him aside, and I know that must break his heart. Well, I think we just open the doors and invite him in and let him be the Lord of this place. 
He says uh, to, to, you know, Peter, a conversation he has with Peter, with other disciples, that they're upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus is still in the process of building his church and it's happening right here in Bradenton, for sure. Number two, second takeaway, time waiting on God is never time wasted. Please hear that. Because I know a number of you in this room are waiting on God right now. This is really, your challenge in life isn't really about the transition for a new pastor here. you got some other stuff you're dealing with. It's causing you to stay awake at night and to worry and to fret. Hey, look, time waiting on God is never time wasted. It's where God does his greatest work. And in a time of waiting, the best thing you can do, as I've already mentioned, is open yourself up to the Holy Spirit. Open yourself up to God. Just be still. However long it takes, just simply be still and let him do his work. I promise you, he'll do it, which is number three. God can be trusted. I, uh, my wife and I, we read the Bible through, we're in the process of reading the Bible through this year. And so we've been uh, reading in the book of Joshua. You know about Joshua, right? Leader of the children of Israel. He takes them into the promised land. Moses wasn't allowed to do that. Joshua was his successor to come into the promised land. And so you have this uh, passage, Joshua 32, 14, where he comes before the children of Israel and he announces to them that he's going to die. He's saying goodbye to them. He's leaving them. And this is what he says in Joshua 32, 14. I, now, I am now going the way of the whole earth and you know with all your heart and all your soul that none of the good promises the Lord your God made to you, listen to this, has failed. Everything was fulfilled for you. Not one promise has failed. Bow your head with me for a moment and let's pray. God, there are many times in my life where I think,